Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good afternoon, everybody. It's wonderful to be here. My name is Sisong Kim Simang, and I will be the moderator for this afternoon's discussion. I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We meet on a country that is rich with stories and I urge all of us to seek out and listen to those stories, stories made and shaped by the people who have tended to and come from and care for this country. And I want to acknowledge the elders past, present and those who will one day come. I have with me today three writers of extraordinary thoughtfulness and talent, Larissa Barrent, Paige Clark, and Damon Galgett. Professor Larissa Barrent is a legal academic. She's a writer, a filmmaker, and an indigenous rights advocate. She is a distinguished professor at UTS. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Paige Clark is a Chinese-American-Australian writer and a teacher. Her fiction has appeared in numerous magazines and literary journals, and her first book, a collection of short stories called She is Haunted, was long-listed for the Stella Prize this year. Welcome, Paige. Thanks for having me. Damon Galgett is a South African writer and the author of nine books, and he took home the Booker Prize this year. He lives and works in Cape Town. Welcome. Thank you. And Damon is a fellow South African, and so I will try not to um, be biased towards him. (laughs) So this is supposed to be a conversation about who gets to tell a story and what the parameters might be for those of us who are interested in creating new worlds and in writing about the human experience by exploring the lives of other human beings. So the literary gods and powers that be have determined the topic for us, but we, being writers, are going to be subversive, <laughs> and we, we may start off with that set of framing about who gets to tell what story, but we also have been to enough writing festivals to know um, that this is a conversation that both has been had and is ongoing, and that there are three books that have been written that we would also like to be able to talk about. And so in some ways, we want to weave a conversation that's about both things. So you will indulge me as we ask questions both about what we're supposed to be here for, as well as the books. Um, So I'd like to begin by asking, because all three of you teach, right? As well as, as writing, you teach. And so I'm wondering how you would help your students to think about this this question about who gets to write which stories. Are some stories off limits for certain kinds of of writers and certain kinds of people? And I'll I'll start with you, Larissa. Thank you, and I'd just like to uh, join in your um, wonderful acknowledgement of country and share those sentiments as well. It's a great privilege to be here on Gadigal Country. Um, And it is a, um, a broad question that I kind of have to look at in several different ways um, with with my students or the the, um, people I mentor through writing. 
um, both in the creative field, and I do have a large number of PhD students who are often doing research in an area where it is about what that, that same question in another way, like who gets to write about particular knowledge. And I guess I grapple with the question in two layers as well, as many of you would know in terms of the diversity of Indigenous nations across the country. Even for me, as a Gamilla or Yualarai woman, there would be a range of stories from my First Nations culture more broadly that wouldn't be mine to tell. And even within my own culture, there would be stories that aren't mine to even in Gamilaroi country, there's stories that aren't mine to tell. So it, I think in a way that First Nations training of sometimes you don't get to tell the story um, is, is a, a different starting point than um, uh, the Western Academy's approach to um, knowledge more generally. You know, I often think of that working in the academy myself, that the Western tradition um, of investigation and knowledge is one that where it's once you're in the academy, you are entitled to know everything. Mm. The more you know, you know, th th the more esteemed you are. Um, you access the books, it's in the books. You know, there's mm. not that thing about the... the um, the coding of stories and who knows them and who doesn't or who gets to know the particular layers of the story. So I guess for me, I have all this complexity in terms of how I, I come to this. And I guess the questions I do ask is why is this your story to tell? Why is this the thing that you get to tell? And is it really your story? And often I'll get my students to write something that will be a, a, almost like a personal essay of why this story is their story to work out where they're coming from and what their point of view is. And I, I think in my own practice as well, it's something that I continually think about. And it's probably one of the reasons that I got into documentary. When I'm drawn to a story, I think it's really powerful. It's something that I feel like more people, particularly more Australians, need to know in terms of our ongoing conversation about reconciliation, and I want to find an audience for that. Um, you know, as a lawyer, you're always trained to hear what somebody's perspective or experience is and you translate that mm. for, some, for them into that context. And I think I've been challenged to rethink that as I go along, to asking myself, well, if, if I think this story is really important, is my role to tell that story or is my role to create the space for that person to tell their story? So whose story is it? Um, so, I mean, I guess that for me is, is one of the, the, the key things that I, I start with. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I guess that the other thing that I, I feel is a really important thing around that um, is I do start from the starting point that it is possible to, to write from a range of perspectives. I, I myself have written from a male perspective, I've written from a non-Indigenous perspective. And I think the real challenge is, um, when you are sitting down with that creative process, how well do you really understand the world of the person who you're putting yourself in the position of? Yeah. And I think one of the challenges we've had in this um, area of non-Indigenous people writing Indigenous stories, which means it now has a kind of visceral reaction to many First Nations people, is there was so little deep understanding of our experience and our culture that it was impossible for people to put themselves in our shoes, but a non-Indigenous, but an Indigenous person living in that, in that culture 
um, often sees sees that because you're you're experiencing it in a different way. So I think there's also a questioning of if you think you know this story, how much of that learning you still want to know. And I could go on for hours, so I'm going to stop there <laughs> and hopefully um, help continue with the conversation. Thanks, Larissa. I think we could listen for hours. Um, Paige, same question. How, how would you help your students to think about this question? And partly the reason I'm asking it in this way is because we are also living in a moment in which mm -hmm. um, humanities is under attack, critical thinking is under attack in this country, and so it is important that we not only have the straightforward conversation, but I think this bigger conversation about how we help one another to think mm. through complexity. Yes, well, even just listening to Larissa, I think I thought of something right then, which is this sort of Western Academy idea that if you do X amount of research, then you have the knowledge, so therefore you can write the character. And I guess for me, I'm not willing to do that research. I'm way too narcissistic in my writing process, um, <laughs> that I'm not just not that interested in, in doing that research outside myself, but also that I think I maybe agree with you, Larissa, that it might not be possible that like that amount of research that you need to do um, to get to X, like that equation or that idea, I don't know if I really believe in that, so therefore, you know, I don't know if you can get there through research. And I guess, in that vein, like that being my kind of personal stance for my own writing process, what I would ask my students would be another why question, but it would be, why do you, why do you want to? Like, what, why do you feel you need to? Um, is it because you feel like you need to position yourself? Is it because, um, I guess this is similar to what you were saying, is it because you think there's work that needs to be done there? And then to question that and ask, you know, if, if this is a white writer um, or a non-Indigenous writer like myself, um, okay, well, how can you do that work in your own identity space, is that possible? Could you write your own whiteness? Um, that's not a new idea either. That's like borrowing on from someone like Claudia Rankine. You know, how are we going to write our own whiteness, my own whiteness that I have as, as a mixed race person? Um, that that kind of line of questioning is probably the one that I would follow. And maybe try to open up possibilities for them to approach the same topic in a way um, where they might actually have real insight that they wouldn't into writing, you know, a character that is not their identity group. Thanks, Paige. Damon, how do you come at this question? Um, as, as you would know, Sasanke, um, South Africa on questions of identity and race went from being <laughs> behind the times to, in some ways, um, ahead of this conversation. There, there are lots of you know, national conversations I can see happening globally which feel almost outdated right now because we started talking about that a long time back. And I remember Nadine Gordimer way back, um, dying days of apartheid, being challenged on her right to speak for black South Africans. Um, and the grounds for that challenge were obviously what do white people know about that experience, which is a fair charge. But I do remember uh, how she used to reply to that. Um, and her example, which she used more than once, I think, was what did James Joyce know about how it feels to be a woman? And yet he wrote that extraordinary Molly Bloom soliloquy. And I think there's a great truth buried in there somewhere, which is that the basis of fiction is precisely imagining how it feels to be somebody who's not you. And we 
measure the success of fiction by how authentic or plausible the result is. So rather than approach this question from a, I don't know, an ideological or political perspective, I guess I would try to push students to approach it from a literary point of view. That is to say, um, don't judge me by what I'm attempting, but judge me by the results. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think it's a fairly good barometer, actually, because if, if your imagination has failed to conceive what might be involved in somebody else's identity, it's very evident on the page um, and very, you know, painful to be judged by that standard. But if we're going to start limiting ourselves um, in what we're allowed to approach, um, we may as well give up fiction right now. That's my feeling. Um, and I, I do see it as almost a writerly duty to defend this position. I, I'm aware it's a highly charged um, political issue right now, but I, I, I think you might almost arrive at the same result if you approach it from a literary point of view. Thank you for saying that, uh, because I think it gives us something to, um, to debate. Um, and so I guess the question then is, if, you, if, if the writer says, judge me by the results, um, if I write a terrible you know, caricature of people and it fails on the imaginary front, I guess the question that I have, and anyone can answer this question, and you can respond to this, Damon, is, is there harm done in the attempt? Hmm. I have something right off the bat that I guess I want to jump in with, which is I think what becomes problematic about your criteria is what is a good literary work and what has determined that for so long. If we're looking at, you know, what, what, where does the value come? Is it, is it prize list? Is it canon? Um, that's, you know, been in the white Anglo tradition for so long. So, yes, maybe that is good according to those terms, um, then maybe, you know, a white, let's just use this example, a white writer could write an Aboriginal character well by those terms of, you know, the prize culture, but where's the basis of that? I guess that's my sort of initial follow-up. It's kind of my reaction too. It's almost like if the, um, you know, I, I look back at a, the canon of non-Indigenous writing about Aboriginal people, which probably resonated with other non-Aboriginal people who had the same negative or unsophisticated views about Aboriginal people, so to them it might ring true. But to us the question becomes, what harm is there done by that? Well, there's a great deal of harm because our voice and experience isn't, um, you know, isn't seen. And um, I'm always curious about a proposition where you remove politics from anything. We often hear the same thing about removing politics from sport, but if writing is an expression of our society and part of what we're doing, I mean, I think the goal of being a great writer is to say something important and, and to, have, um, to help people see the world in a deeper way. Um, and, you know, I, I just, you can't do that in a political vacuum, so I don't know where the line between literature and politics is. And that's not to say that people can't write about things. It's just really a question of why is this your story and what do you want to say? I look at a book like The Secret River 
by Kate Grenville, and I think mm. it's an extraordinary contribution. Mm. And it's she, the the brilliant thing she did in that book, which talks about the mindset and the callousness of colonisation, and as a First Nations read, I know not everyone liked it, but I can say when I read it as a First Nations reader, I really responded to it, and it taught me something. Uh, she shows that it is possible to write about a vast range of subjects, but the question is, what is your perspective and why are you writing? And the trick about that was, she wrote it from the non-Indigenous perspective, and there's no sense of whitewashing. Mm. You get exactly the, the sense of the horror of what's happened on the frontier. She doesn't shy away from it, but she never felt the need to fill in with an Indigenous character because the strength of her writing was able to take you to that point. There is another book by Liam Davison, who's unfortunately passed, and it was a book that never got as much attention as it should have, and it's a wonderful book called The White Woman. And again, his book is about um, a, a white man in the Gippsland who goes out to participate in the massacres because he, he wants to save this imaginary white woman who's out, um, who's been seen out in, in, the, um, in the Gippsland. There was a myth around it. And through this book, he confronts uh, in a very strong way the impact of colonisation without having to put himself in the Aboriginal perspective or try to speak from an Aboriginal point of view. So I offer those up as two examples of being able to have a conversation in an area of like reconciliation and say something but from a point of view that isn't appropriating and, and isn't as likely to cause harm. Mm. Yeah, um, slightly defensively, I'd just like to qualify what I said. I'm, I'm certainly not trying to uh, absent politics uh, from the approach because, you know, coming from South Africa, everything is framed by politics. Um, and I also wasn't trying to suggest that um, the standard of judgment should be how good is the work. It's really how persuasive is the character that you're creating. Um, so, again, I, un I understand it's a highly charged um, topic, but um, let me roll out a question to you then. I, I'm not a woman. I don't know what it feels like, but imaginatively I need as a writer to take that step. So is that a different question than the racial one? Um, am I allowed to write from a female perspective? Um, what, what I have to take on the chin, and I have in my work, I mean in this book too, um, is when female readers uh, respond and say to me, you, you think uh, you know how it feels to be a woman, but I'm not persuaded by that. Um, I, you know, I, I have to take it and, and believe it because I'm not the authority on that. But should I not attempt it? I don't know why that's a question for others. I guess that's when we were talking about what do you say to your students? The responsibility is on you as the creative person. What is the ethical framework and the creative framework that you create for yourself in terms of how you practice your creativity? Is it something you do collaboratively? How do you decide how you prepare to create that voice? So I'm not sure that saying the question of am I allowed, the question is, for you as a creative person, if you are creating that character and you feel like that's the story you need to tell, you know, how are you certain that that is, you know, that you are creating that character authentically? 
And, you know, I'm not, I, I've already said, I don't think it's, it's impossible to write cross-cultures or cross-genders. I think we all do it. But it's, I don't think the question is about what you should be allowed or not allowed to do. The question is for you as a creative person who wants to have a conversation and engage people with your work and perhaps not do harm and act ethically, what are those parameters that you're making for yourself, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. I think it's something that becomes part of your own creative practice. It's a question that you are responsible mm -hmm. to yourself for. Yeah, I, 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 I'm in agreement. I don't, I don't take issue. I guess this debate in South Africa is maybe... Um, framed more severely than it is elsewhere, because I, th I think, Sasaki, you may disagree, but it often feels to me like it comes down to, are you allowed to do that? So I think that that's a, a question that, um, it, it is a way of framing the question that we, it can go there, but it doesn't have to. And, and so I, I wanna move to my next question, because I think that it might help to unblock it a little bit, and that is, that very often this is a conversation that is about where we are not permitted to go. And I wonder whether there are opportunities for storytelling that are presented in this moment where more questions are being raised. So what are the opportunities that are embedded in a time when there are consequences for writing terribly, for trading in racist stereotypes, for ventriloquizing, for stealing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so, if we, we have to accept um, that it's not just about what you can't do, but there has to be something that you now can do that is a result of this moment, right? So what is that? What, what, might, what, what, is, what is better about this moment than the past? That's, I think, another way of thinking about this question, right? So what is better? Well, I guess from my perspective, I think one of the things that is definitely better is that um, this conversation has come, come out of the fact that there had been a lack of diversity of voices within the canon um, and a lack of um, diversity of what was taught within the curriculum. And we are, I think, living through a time of an incredible First Nations renaissance in writing. And not just do you see, um, you know, somebody was mentioning this this morning uh, in the panel of the observation that um, Tony Birch has made, who's obviously a long-time attender of, um, liter of literary festivals, so he's noticed the change of having one First Nations writing panel somewhere in the festival on the side to what you see now where you might have a curated conversation around a First Nations issue, but you see First Nations um, right through... The festival, you can say the same about film festivals. Um, you can, you know, you see the same thing happening on, on television, that there are more stories to be told. And I think in this time of um, creativity, we are seeing people write across a whole range of genres that First Nations people weren't encouraged to before, speculative fiction, science fiction, romance, etc. Um, and so I guess what I'm, I'm saying is I think for us as learners and readers, there are a lot more opportunities to really be exposed deeply to that experience. I think, as I mentioned earlier, one of the challenges for non-Indigenous people writing Indigenous characters, which is why it was done so poorly and so damagingly, was there just was not that ability to be able to deeply understand that experience and deeply understand that culture. 
And I think at least now, if people are interested in that, there are opportunities to learn that and to think more diversely around that. And I say that from a First Nations perspective, but I think you can talk about that across a range of diversities. I think we're enriched by having a broader conversation and hearing broader voices. And of course, all of that means we're having a greater intellectual exchange, which should actually help our own creativity. So if the, if the task of the writer is to start with what you know and then, you know, imagine from there, if you don't know, if you have no contact with, if you have no sense of the humanity of, you can't, you, you know, your starting point is going to be pretty awful. And no self-reflection about what you don't know, yeah. I think, has been mm -hmm. part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Paige, Damon, do you want to I think kind of following on from Larissa's ideas of opportunity, I'll speak of my own experience of writing this book, which was a long process. I'm a really slow writer. It took me about seven or eight years. The first story that I wrote, there's no identity markers in it at all. And I think that that's something that I rarely hear talked about was actually 10 years ago, it was really scary to write a story about your race. Like that, it actually... It felt to me like if I wrote a story about being a Chinese woman that I would not have opportunities to publish that story, that it wouldn't meet these markers of something that was good. And like, it, it actually makes me feel really emotional to think about that right now because we're not in that moment anymore. And now I feel like, wow, actually the stories that I wrote about being a Chinese woman were really valued um, when this book was published. And how incredible is that? And I think that's that flip side of that conversation of saying, hey, we're sick of yellow face, um, no more Mickey Rooney's in Breakfast at Tiffany's, that that actually did open the door then for me to say, well, this is actually what it feels like to live in this body. Um, and, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that, you know, even just a few years ago. Interesting. Damon, what are the opportunities presented by this moment when you think about your own writing? If you think about a journey of, you know, so having written nine books, right? So this, this yeah. What's, what's embedded in this moment that's exciting about these big, challenging conversations for how you write? Um, in a way, I, want, I almost want to stay silent on this question because I think, as a white male, I, I probably shouldn't answer it. Um, I'm, I, I mean, I'm interested and startled by what Paige has just said. I actually hadn't thought about that, that you might not feel there's a platform even to speak, like you almost, your identity doesn't exist in that, in that zone. Um, I'm, I'm a little torn because in part I feel like I, I want to defend the, the right of a writer's imagination to go anywhere. On the other hand, I know that as a white South African, there are lots of areas I never have gone into because I simply can't inhabit them imaginatively. And I've, I've sort of tried to build into the writing um, that fact. I mean, I've, I've, I've tried to make certain zones register um, as a reflection of my own ignorance, if you like. So I, I don't think I've really ventured out of a white perspective on things because I don't feel I have um, the knowledge, simply. So, you know, I'm, I'm now speaking against my own um, original <laughs> argument, but um, it's sort of what I was trying to say is that if you, if you really are kind of loyal to your own instincts, you're probably not going to venture into zones that you don't know, um, because you're going to be 
writing crappily, basically. Yeah. But I guess um, I want to push you to, to answer the question because a lot of the... Um, the uh, a lot of this conversation is predicated on this idea that the only thing that white people and white men in particular have at this moment to do is lose. Hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So part of this, what's the underlying thing is, a, is an anxiety that all of these new voices and questions about whether you can and cannot write the story, that all of that, what underpins that is a sense that white guys are gonna lose so my question is, what are the opportunities? Like, I don't think that that is true, that white guys lose from being challenged, uh, from the canon being challenged. Like, what opportunities are there to imagine more and differently and to not be, like, maybe, maybe to be afraid, but like in a way that's good. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I guess, so that's where I'm coming from with the question. Yeah. So you don't have to answer it on the spot because you probably won't have, you know, like I, I but I want to circle back to it because I think it is good. You want to, we want a role model that that's actually, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a loss. Yeah. It might, there might be some things to lose, but it doesn't have to be a loss is, I, I guess, mm. what the, where the question is coming from. Yeah, I mean, I, I... Speaking for myself, I'm, I'm, I haven't felt this wider debate has deprived me of anything. If anything, um, it feels as if, you know, um, it's introduced new voices, which, um, how is that a threat if uh, voice is what you're working with all the time? Um, yeah, I, I um, again, I'm going to retreat and say I don't, I don't, I don't, um, even, even with the debate being opened, I still wouldn't venture further um, into areas of experience that are not my own. Um, if I were going to create a, a, a black South African character, I would only go um, far enough with such a creation uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to back off from this question, Sonki. I'm <laughs> okay. going to get myself okay. into trouble. <laughs> That's okay. We can, and we'll talk about it in Salome in the, in the, in right. the book as well. Um, and so let's circle back to the books themselves, because that's, in some ways the books are the part of the answer to this, to mm. this question. Um, so I've asked each of you to select a... Um, a uh, and I've, I've selected an excerpt for each of you. Um, and so I'd love you, Larissa, to to um, read from the excerpt that I have asked for you to read from. Sure. And I might just, as a bit of an introduction to the book, because I think what the book is about goes to your question in a way. So um, my book is, a, um, is about a mother-daughter relationship where there's been um, a murder in the family uh, decades before, and it looks at the impact of that loss on the mother-daughter relationship when the, another daughter slash sister was murdered. And, and how it's added an additional um, layer of complexity to this relationship. And I have um, my, um, my mother is Della, who's grown up in a quite segregated country town, and her daughter Jasmine's gone to university. And why I just wanted to preface it that way um, was just, for me, one of the things in writing the book, I placed my characters on a literary tour of England. So they go to the Bronte Parsonage, the Austin Village, the D.H. Lawrence Village, um, Thomas Hardy, they see Dickens' London, Bloomsbury, Virginia Woolf. And Talk this, about the canon. This was the canon that I grew <laughs> up reading, and I love it. Like, I love that canon. 
And for me, the book was about marrying my love of that, those books. And I went back and read them again as the, the fun research for the book. Um, and I was struck by how much I still loved them because they felt like friends and how probably Wuthering Heights was the one that I struggled the most with, thinking, oh, how did I think this was a romance? But uh, <laughs> I must have done that. Um, but sort of seeing the, the Christmas of the writing, how, you know, the, the, how Virginia Woolf's ideas, somebody who was who would probably not have wanted to hang out with me on any day, but, but who had something to say about feminism and women's roles that still felt very, very relevant to me. Mm. And I, I really appreciate and honour that canon, but at the same time, I grew up with the richness of First Nations storytelling and my cultural stories and my cultural values. And for me, this was a book about trying to bring those two together. So it answers your question in a way of what is the richness this moment can give us. I would hope it would give other people who only grow up with the canon the richness of what I had, which was actually having these two really rich worlds of storytelling. So with that as, as my intro, I Thank shall you. now do the reading. Thank you. There were those years I shared a bed with Jimmy, and when the girls came along, we all slept in the bed as a family. Even when Jimmy no longer joined us, I still slept in the bed with the girls from time to time if they wanted to. It always made me feel safe, and I thought it must have done the same for them. At least, I hoped it did. And I did love it, those moments when my whole world seemed made up of just the people with me on the mattress, like it was a lifeboat in the ocean. I'd get a flush of a feeling that I could only describe as a clean, pure happiness. I thought it was just a natural thing, everyone sleeping together until that night it changed everything, until the trial. When I had to tell the court what happened, what I remembered, the lawyer tw twisted things around. He'd asked why we'd all slept in the same bed, and I didn't know how to explain that feeling of happiness, so I told him it was just what we did, and that wasn't an untruth. When I said that, he'd made a face as if to say it wasn't normal, like I was a bad mother who'd done something seriously wrong. And then he went on, why was I drinking? Why would I let my children be at a party where adults were drinking? How could I remember things if I was drunk? Was this something that was a regular thing? There were other questions worse than that, which don't bear remembering, but you can see why I began to feel that it was all my fault. When we finally had a break in the court, I was shaking. I felt like all the breath and blood had been sucked out of me. Kiki, that's Della's sister, was fuming and stormed up to the lawyer who was bringing the case, the prosecutor. Why did you let him do that to her, she demanded. Why didn't you stop it? Calm down, he told her, dismissing her rage. It's usual. It won't affect the outcome. No, it didn't affect the outcome, but it sure did deepen the scars. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. So part of what's so powerful about that, Larissa, is um, both the intimacy of the shared bed and the kind of the visual imagery of that and the kind of innocence of that and, and as Della says, how that gets twisted uh, in, a, in a court of law. Um, and part of what's so powerful about Della is that you see this incredible woman who is damaged and vulnerable but also so kind and I, I think you did this remarkable job of creating a person um, who isn't a caricature of vulnerability, uh, whose vulnerability isn't weaponized to make some kind of wider point. 
Um, I just, I really loved this character. Thank you. And I think she's a, a gift to Australian literature. So thank you for that. She was based on a couple of very um, dear Aboriginal women who are close to my heart. So when people say they love Della, it always makes me feel like they're embracing those women. So thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Paige, I'd love to, to hear your excerpt. I'll just jump Do you right set in. It up? Do you want to set it up in the same way that Larissa did? Maybe I'll... Can I read and then I'll... Sure. Then I'll see, show you sure. how it answers the question. Sure. Nobody on this panel is listening to me, so it's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> my mother... So this is from a story called Why My Hair Is Long. My mother said I needed a haircut. She had just started seeing a doctor who activated her scalp with thin needles and prescribed a mix of hormone pills. I found the bottle of medicine first then the invoice from the doctor for her weekly procedures. Look how long your hair is getting, she said. You look like a fundamentalist. I'm afraid of hairdressers, I said. They love telling you what you're doing wrong. Split ends, dry scalp, I don't care. I can cut your hair. When she came back with a shiny pair of scissors and no chair, first I begged and then I said nothing. She told me to hold still and put her hand to the back of my neck. Her fingers dug in but did not leave a mark. Three snips was all it took. My new hair was short and jagged as if I were a doll that a child had given a haircut. I can't forgive you, I thought. Tell everyone you got gum stuck in your hair, my mother said. My boyfriend and I book flights to Hawaii. I buy us matching Hawaiian shirts and eat macadamia nuts to prepare for the trip. When I am by myself, I practice wearing my hair down, flipping it behind me as I walk. On our way to the airport, we drop his dog off at his parents' house. His mother waits at the door as we drive away, waving as our car rounds the corner. When we are in the air, high above the Pacific, I try to tell him why I don't speak to my mother. But what I can't explain is this, how she is always there, like a phantom limb, the body's memory of what is lost. Mm. Thank you. And I guess to quickly contextualize it, this is one of those earlier stories that I was talking about that I guess writes around race, but it very much at the heart of it is not just a mother-daughter story, but it's the mother-daughter story of a Chinese immigrant and an American-born Chinese daughter and this huge gulf that exists between them because of the experiences that the mother has that she can't explain to her daughter of the trauma, this intergenerational trauma. And, you know, I, I love this story and I, as much as you can love your own work, I also <laughs> can see all the flaws in it. Um, but in this story, it's that unpicking, unpacking um, first of that relationship with my mother, but then of that intergenerational trauma that I think the book explores in more depth. It does. Every, um, I, also, I, I chose that. I, I wanted to hear you in your voice um, read that passage for the same reasons as I wanted Larissa to read um, hers and why I've asked Damon for his, because I, I think there's something so beautiful about that intimacy of a mother and daughter the trust inherent, and then the trust broken, and how it lingers. I just think you, um, you sketch, you, you write with remarkable economy. Like you cover a lot of ground in two, two paragraphs, and every short story. And I think that's why your, your voice lends itself so well to short stories, is that you've thank really you. chosen a medium that works for your writing style. So thank you. 
Damon, your excerpt. Do you want to set it up, or will you defy my... Uh... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I actually don't like to break the rules. Everyone that knows me knows that. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> um, I'll set it up yeah. briefly. Um, the youngest daughter of a family, white South African family, called Amor, has overheard or believes she overheard her father agree and to um, a promise that her mother extracted from him on her deathbed to give a piece of land with a broken down house on it to the black lady who's worked for their family for years and years and who looked after her, the mother, in her last illness. But um, her father denies that any such promise was ever made. Amor believes her brother supports her in what she wants to happen, um, but this, this following conversation might suggest otherwise. This is Amor speaking at the beginning of this extract. I heard what Pa said to you, and it isn't right. What isn't right? He did promise, I heard him. He promised Ma he would give Salome her house. Her little face is lit from within by its sureness. Amor, he says gently. What? Salome can't own the house. Even if Pa wanted to, he can't give it to her. Why not, she says, puzzled. Because, he says, it's against the law. The law, why? You are not serious. But then he looks at her and sees how serious she is. Oh, dear me, he says, do you have no idea what country you're living in? No, she doesn't. Amor is 13 years old. History has not yet trod on her. She has no idea what country she's living in. She has seen black people running away from the police because they're not carrying their passbooks and heard adults talking in urgent, low voices about riots in the townships. And only last week at school, they had to learn a drill about hiding under tables in case of attack. And still, she doesn't know what country she's living in. There's a state of emergency, and people are being arrested and detained without trial, and there are rumors flying around, but no solid facts because there's a blackout in news, and only happy, unreal stories are being reported, but she mostly believes these stories. She saw her brother's head bleeding yesterday from a rock, but still, even now, she doesn't yet know who threw the rock or why. Blame it on the lightning. She's always been a slow child. One thing, though, perturbs her. But why, she says, why did you tell Pa to give Salome her house if you knew he couldn't? He shrugs, because, he says, I felt like it. And it's exactly then, in the tiniest way, without even knowing it herself, that she begins to understand what country she's living in. <sighs> Yeah, just beautiful, and again, that economy and that way of showing um, the innocence project of whiteness in South Africa, right? How, how you can be looking uh, at all these clues about the country in which you're living, but not see it. And then, of course, this other layer of like this brother, so in the book she has this brother Anton, who's 
boorish and loves to clash with the family and likes to fight. And so he's just made this big deal saying, this promise has been made to this black woman. You have to make good on this promise. But he doesn't mean it at all. And so the, the country that she's coming to know is also the country of the heart of whiteness. You know, that, that um, refusal to be truly honest, which is the only way you can live on top of other people, right? It's the same thing in Australia. You can only live on top of, you can only oppress people if there is a missing something in your heart, right? Um, so again, that excerpt for me just speaks so powerfully to, to that. All three excerpts are examples of characters and stories that you know incredibly well. Um, and I suppose the question, and maybe I'll ask, um, ask you, Damon, Larissa kind of answered it in a way. Um, was it difficult to write these characters um, because they're all so familiar and actually, ultimately, m most of them are so egregious? Like, they're not easy white people to like. <laughs> <laughs> No, they're not. Um, it's funny, I've, I've had a um, sort of dual response um, to these unlikable characters. For, for, for people who are not South African, maybe not familiar um, with these sorts of people, it seems to feel a little bit exaggerated, a little bit cartoonish. On the other hand, people who grew up in Pretoria at that time have, I mean, a lot of people have said to me, I know these people, I know exactly how they are. So although on one hand they seem like a carnival of grotesques, on the other hand, those are the people I grew up amongst and they were hard to like. Hmm. Hmm. And what is, the, what is the purpose? And so when, when we present this, um, this is such a terrible question. What are you trying to do? <laughs> what are you trying to, yeah, what are you trying to, to do with with that unlikability? Well, it would, it would be, um, there would be no access to this world if, if um, every single character in that book had no morally redeeming features, right? So I like to think anyway that Amor, the youngest daughter in the family, is the moral door through which we, we enter the story. She's the one person who does want this promise to be fulfilled and, and doggedly keeps on. You can argue about the limits uh, of that impulse, and that is really part of my point, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess the point with this passage, at least for me, is that Amor understands or begins to understand what country she's living in, not because of all those um, political facts, the things she's observed about you know, black people and past books and oppression, she understands it because her brother shows his unkindness to her. And that unkindness, in a way, which um, is very central to this topic, I guess, involves a, what you said, um, you, you, you know, you, you can't live a, with other people if you have that sort of hardness of heart. It's a, it's a failure of imagination. And in a certain way, apartheid would not have been possible without that failure of imagination. You need to kind of deaden your sense of how it feels to be at the receiving end of an unjust system in mm. order for that system to keep on. Yeah, yeah, many analogies to Australia. So, mm. yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Paige, I guess a similar 
question to you, your stories. What are you, what are you doing? Why did you write this particular collection? And what, I, you know, I have some ideas about why they're a collection, but what mm. makes them a collection, a thing that belongs together in one place? I guess for me, why I wrote this book is because I, I had to. I felt like I had to write to figure out, you know, who I was in, in the space. And there's so much working out in this book. Uh, you know, this book is me. Like, and I guess that maybe that's the limits of the imagination is that, you know, I don't necessarily ever feel drawn to going outside of kind of my, my head. Um, but then I think that you can still go to such fantastical places. Like, I think that, you know, my, my book is probably the most surreal. So even though it's incredibly autobiographical, um, you know, maybe even verging on autofiction in some sections, it's also completely fantastical. Um, so that was all in my head too. Yeah, it is very, um, it's a weird, like witchy, strange uh, book and like really lovely at, at the same time. Like I really enjoyed how you do that. And so it's interesting mm. to hear you refer to it as autofiction because I didn't get that. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, so maybe there is no limit to that imagination as well. Like you can still stick very close to yourself. And that goes back to this idea of possibility is that I didn't, you know, have to look much further. Like I could be sitting in an, an empty room and I have, you know, my whole life of material that I, I can mine. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, Larissa, you set your book outside of Australia in the heart of empire. Mm. Um, and I, I found that an interesting choice and decision. Um, because it's such an Australian story. And when I say that it's such an Australian story, I really mean, I don't mean it's an indigenous story. I mean, it's an Australian story for lots of reasons that we can talk about. But is that also part of why you said it outside of Australia? It, it was. I mean, I, in a way, the seed for writing the book came from something that was related to the reading that you gave me. And it was in my own legal practice, seeing how non-Indigenous people of a particular type would treat victims of crime, Aboriginal victims of crime I was working with, and be dismissive of their experiences. And the, the, the time that was most shocking to me was hearing a senior member of the legal profession say to one of the fathers of one of the murder victims I'd been working with, when he asked him what, what he should do next, white man said to him, well, you should get some counselling and move on. And I just thought there was no way that this man would have said that to this father if that father had have been white. So that was a big motivation was, was that. And I guess then in creating the characters of, of Jasmine and Della, I, I wanted to put them in a place where they would they would be confronted and have to be reflective. So Della's never left her hometown. She goes overseas. Jasmine also hasn't travelled. She's more aware of the literature. It's her choice of a tour. I, I also, in that, understand in my own culture the importance of storytelling as a healing process. So this, bringing the stories, the Aboriginal storytelling and the canon together started to make me think, yep, there, there, there is something there. And I guess the other element of, of having it there was this idea of us as First Nations people going to this place of colonisation that never reflects on what it's done over mm. here mm. and having my characters look at, you know, the, the, the architecture and the museums and this, all of the, the spoils in a way. 
but really um, having somebody like Della be able to look at that from a real First Nations perspective and be able to analyse it, you know, sure, this is 12,000 years old, but the fish traps are 40,000. Why are they so excited about this? Yeah. You know, that kind of <laughs> thing that, that gives that, that perspective. And I, I think everyone who's been overseas, whether they've been for a little trip or a long trip, or lived there for a while, knows that that experience changes you. Because when you're in that context, you think about yourself differently. And certainly that was for me, my first trip overseas when I was living in the States, was incredibly liberating for me because it was the first time I realised I could be in a room as a First Nations person and it not be a political thing, mm -hmm. where I'd been the only Aboriginal ch uh, girl in my classes at school and the only one mm -hmm. in, in all these places, and it was always political. This idea of, of that was empowering to me. It helped me understand what was happening at home. And it also made me realise it didn't matter where I go. I didn't have to be in Australia to feel like an Aboriginal woman. And that was really empowering. And actually, just as an aside, it helped me put in context Australia's, um, a certain element of Australia's um, culture that's dismissive of the arts. And, and, and it helped me realise that I was dealing with that too. So it was really liberating. I wanted to give my characters that chance to see themselves differently. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think it is important to have a perspective of leaving to be able to understand you know, where you're from uh, better. It's something very instructive about that. Um, and also to be able to recognize how similar your place is to many other places, right? Um, there's a question, I forgot to say at the beginning that we are live and direct, and, and hello to all the um, libraries and regional places that are participating in this conversation by watching it. And we have a question from a viewer at the National Library of Australia to the panel. So I'll go to that question and I'll come back to one that I have. Are there any particular authors or fictional works that have been influential or inspiring to your own ability to explore authentic characters and stories? Who wants to take that first? I'm looking at you, Damon. <laughs> Um, in a way, this sort of, uh, I've been preoccupied by um, the question you asked me way earlier, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to regress the conversation, but in a way it bounces off this, um, about, you know, what I'm, I might, have, might feel I've gained from the situation that we're in. And I think, honestly, as a white male writer, I don't feel like I've gained something. I haven't lost anything, but I haven't gained anything. The gain is elsewhere, the, the opening up of other people's stories. And if narratives are a way of um, making sense of the world, the South African world, for example, has been beset by great areas of silence, and I've gained in the sense that that silence has shrunk. Um, there is a platform for, for other, other voices to come in. My answer to this particular question, I'm afraid, is going to be sweepingly general, um, because I think every, almost every book one reads tells you another version of the world. I mean, one of the points of books is that they teach you the world is not made in your own image. It's almost palpably obvious when, you know, certain public figures are holding forth which of them read books and which don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't read a book, mate. 
<laughs> Paige, do you want to take uh, it? Uh, well, the answer to this question for me is a kind of in the beginning before we were backstage, um, I think Sasanke said, oh, I feel like I know all of you because I've read your books. And, you know, my reply was kind of, you do, you do know me because I've read your book. And for me, that writer is a white American writer, Amy Hempel. And I don't know if I actually know her, but she does exactly what I try to do in my work, which is um, this sort of rawness and vulnerability and also economy and minimalism. Um, but, but this kind of way of showing you as a reader how she sees the world as a writer and that's really all I can hope to do and how I go about creating an authentic character and stories. Larissa? Well, I guess in a way my answer is the same as Damon's. I think it's, you know, that's the wonderful thing about being a reader is that you get to experience so many different um, views of the world and different characters. And I would say the same. I, I think it's rare that I pick up something and read it and I don't feel like there's something that I've gotten out of it or connected with and I can read across cultures, perspectives, and I, I really like that. I guess the thing I add to that is we've got this wonderful um, kind of philosophy in our community that our, our elders are like libraries. Mm. And so I always think that thing of listening to the story of people who've lived amazing lives and have a lot of knowledge, again, it's probably a bit of a cultural difference between some Western cultures and my own is that valuing of people more as they get older. Yes. And uh, so in terms of where I get my books from, sometimes I get them from a walled library, but sometimes I get them from the, the Library of Elders. Yes, that's great. The Library of Elders. That's mm. a wonderful um, phrase. And so true. So many of, when I think about, you know, the characters who in, in, inhabit my head and when I think, oh, I'm going to write this down, it's often a person rather than a, a thing mm. that I've read in a book. Yeah, which segues nicely into the next set of questions I want to ask you. I also feel like I don't know what time it is. It's actually we're at exactly at the end. We're at the end. <laughs> Isn't that a great time to say what time is it? <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone, for such an interesting conversation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.